You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Hello and good morning. Hope that 10 o'clock is doing well today. Let's, don't waste any time. Let's get to the book of Colossians together. Colossians, the New Testament, the 12th book in. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, after you make your way through the Gospels and Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians. So the book of Colossians is where we've been for the entirety of the summer. So if you've been here, this is no surprise at all that this is where we're turning to today. Give you a little context. Paul is in jail. He's in Rome. And he's writing to a church there at Colossae, uh, thus the book of Colossians, uh, to a church that he's never been to before. So how does he know what is happening there in the church? Well, certainly the Holy Spirit is carrying him along as he's writing this. But the pastor of the church at Colossae, Epaphras, he is there in Rome with Paul, visiting Paul, giving him some some messages uh, uh, from, from the church, as well as letting him know what was happening in the church, maybe some issues that needed to be addressed, giving him a little update on the growth of the church. But also there's another person there with him, with Paul in Rome, and his name is Tychicus. And Tychicus is actually going to take this letter, uh, the letter to the church of Colossians, to the church of Colossae, the letter of Colossians, is going to take that to the church, and he's going to read that letter out loud. Um, The church is a new church. It's only been around probably six years at this point by the time that they're reading this letter. And so it's a new church. It's a young church. Uh, Christianity is, is still spreading throughout the known world, and so there's a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of things that, that the Church of Colossae want to know about who Christ is, um, how permanent is this salvation, uh, what does it mean to put on the new self, what does it mean to be in Christ or to be a new person in Christ. And so Paul is, is writing this letter, again, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing to this church, and what he says, he might as well be writing this in 2022, writing to us here at Highland in the city of Waco. Why is that? Because God's word is true for all people, all places, all times. So even though he's writing this almost 2,000 years ago, it is applicable to our lives today because the spirit of the Lord that instructed Paul to write these words is the same spirit of the Lord that's gonna teach us this word today. So the first two chapters of Colossians are pretty much an upward look. We've already covered chapter one and chapter two. Pretty much just a vertical staring into the greatness of Christ. So chapter one and chapter two is about the riches of Christ, the deity of Christ, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. But then in chapter three, verse one, it begins to pivot. It begins to pivot to our lives and how we interact with others horizontally. In fact, the Bible does this all the time. It begins with the vertical who God is, who Christ is, the the power of his salvation in our lives. And then it turns, so often, almost all the letters to Paul, we hear, first of all, who Christ is, and then we get to see, what does that mean for us? Like we move from the vertical, staring into the greatness of Christ, into the horizontal. What does this mean in the way that we relate to one another? So today, we continue in chapter three. We started there last week. And honestly, there's nothing really fancy or deep a revolutionary that I can add to this passage. The whole idea of chapter three is that those who are in Christ, we are living in eternal life right now. We said this last week, we're we're heaven people right now. We're not waiting for eternal life to start for us once we breathe our last. We are living in eternal life now. We're living the new life because we are living in Christ. We saw this last week with your Bible open. 
It's not on the screen, but it is in your Bible. Look at chapter three, verse one, just to kind of remind you of, of who we are in Christ. Chapter three, verse one, if then you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Look at verse three. For you, Christian, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Continue to read there in verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears. So Paul is reminded us at the very beginning of this chapter of, of who Christ is and who we are in Christ because we are new creations. There's these certain patterns of our lives now that should define us as being people who are in Christ and certain things that should not be a part of the new self. So Paul is going to use the illustration of clothing. Uh, we get this illustration every day. We're, we'll take some clothing off. We'll put some clothing on. We'll take some clothing off. We go to bed at night. We take off clothes. We put on our, our, our pajamas, our PJs, whatever you wear at, at nighttime. You put those things on. And then in the morning, you take off whatever you sleep in. You put something else new on. At least I'm hoping this morning you remember to put something on. And so we, we are, we're clothed right now in here. But so we're accustomed to this, to this analogy. This is the analogy that Paul is using. There's things that we take off. There's things that we put on. So last week, we saw the things we are to take off. Your Bible's still open. Look there at chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death then, and here's the things we are to take off. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, these things are, are, are idolatry, which means we're worshiping those things more than we worship God. You can jump down to, to verse 8. We see another list of things we are to take off because we are now in Christ. But now you must put them all away, verse 8. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth and do not lie to one another. Those are things that we are to, we are to take off. But now we see this morning, as of today, we see these, these things in this, this new portion of the passage we're going to look at of things that we are to put on, things that will characterize us in Waco and characterize us in the community of those who are in Christ. Here's what a Christian is called to be and a Christian is called to do. So let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 12. We left off at verse 11 last week, pick it up verse 12 today. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and here's the things we're to put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So in verse 12, it begins, first of all, don't miss this, who you are, Christian. There are three attributes that we see about who we are in Christ Jesus, and these three things describe us. More than that, they should define us. And I think it's really significant that before you see the behavior of a Christian, we have to be reminded of the identity of a Christian. Before we're taught here by the Spirit of God, before Paul began to write this out of here's what you need to start doing, here's your behavior, here's your action, first of all, he says, but here's your nature. Here is your identity as a new person. So you note takers, you can write this down. Once you know who you are, then you can do what you're called to do. But it begins with who you are and who you are as a new creation, who you are as a new person. And so Paul begins here telling us who we are in Christ before he begins to make a list of the things that we are to do and who we are to be. In fact, I think the opposite is true also. If you don't know who you are in Christ, it's not going to feel natural to put on these things. It's going to feel forced. You're never going to either never going to do what God has called you to do or be who God has called you to be. Or again, it's going to almost feel legalistic that you have to kind of follow these, these rules. First of all, you have to start with who you are. We are told right here who we are, Christian, and these are unbelievably powerful words. Here's the first word that we see in verse 12, chosen. 
Here, here's how I'll define that. Unearned, God-initiated, adoptive selection into his family. The word there for, for chosen is the word ekletos in Greek. It's where we get our words elect or select. So the first thing you need to understand about your identity before we even start talking about your behavior or my behavior is understanding the nature of the new person, who we are in Christ. And the first thing we see here is that we are, we are chosen. Now I know there's a lot of opinions, believe it or not, in a church setting, a lot of opinions on salvation. Like how are we saved? How far in advance did, did God know about our salvation? Were we predetermined? Were we elected? Were we selected? And so uh, let me just give you about three things real quick that uh, I think we can all agree upon. If, if not, just email me tomorrow. We'll see why we disagree. But here's, here's the first thing. God knew you, loved you, and chose you before you loved him, before you knew him, before you chose him. Salvation, listen, family, salvation has to be centered around God and not around us. Salvation is about the glory of God, not just the rescue of people. Primarily, it's about the glory of God. So let's, let's hope we can agree on this because I can show this to you. Old Testament character of God, certainly the New Testament process of salvation. And this is good news for you. He loved you before you loved him. He chose you before you chose him. He knew you before you knew him. That's the first thing I'm gonna tell you. Here's the second thing. There is no way we're gonna do salvation without Jesus. Like he's the center of, of our salvation. He is the center of, of the human rescue. So there's no way we're going to be saved without Jesus. That's the central thing. Here's the third thing I'll say about salvation. I don't know how. I'm still trying to understand why. Like, why would you save me? The how We'll probably find out in heaven. If you think you know exactly how, I probably don't believe you because I don't think anybody knows exactly how it is that we are saved, like when God knew things and how he pulled us in. I, I, can, I can wait until heaven to figure out the how, right? Don't we all have a long list of things we want to ask the Lord when we get to heaven? I'm just wondering right now the why. God, why would you save someone like me? Now, this may be a huge shock to you, but I'm not that lovable. I don't feel like I was worth rescuing. And yet God saw something and he chose me. Yes. He selected me. He adopted me. I was a spiritual orphan. And brother and sister, so were you before he pulled you in. And in our, in our spiritual orphanage, he, he pulled us in. He brought us into his family. And so it was an unearned. In other words, we weren't lovely. We weren't worthy of salvation. It was God initiated. He started the whole thing. And he chose us as spiritual orphans to be brought into his family. I'm not real sure how. I'm still wondering why, but I will tell you this. I will never grasp the love of God. It is that deep and that high and that wide. And so it's a little bit like, why did my wife Jennifer marry me? I have no idea, but I'm glad she did. In the same way, salvation. I don't know why God saved me, but I am glad he did. Secondly, we're holy. This is, this is who we are. Before we're talking about what, we, what we're supposed to be doing, let's talk about who we are in Christ. We're holy. I'll just define this, is that we're drawn out of the mainstream of the culture. We are pulled out of the, the, the culture around us. We are set apart. Uh, really, the word here, uh, uh, hagios, for holy, is the same word defined as saints. Like, we, we've been sainted. 
We've been pulled out of the mainstream of the culture. The culture is, is moving towards self-centeredness. Uh, the, the, the culture is moving toward all these different identities. The, the culture is moving toward more money, more stuff. What can I get? The culture is moving toward me first. I don't care what, anybody, what happens to anybody else. God is saying here, I have made you holy. I have pulled you out. I've made you a saint. I have pulled you out of the culture. I have set you apart. The big New Testament word is consecrated. I've pulled you out of this world. I've pulled you out of the systems of this world. This is why Jesus said the world will hate you. The world will not understand you because you've been taken out of the mainstream of the culture. Here's the third thing that we are in Christ. We're beloved. I define that as God has personally set his love on you in great affection. Normally in the New Testament, the word loved, when it's used, it's the Greek word, of course, agape. But here it does not say that we're the loved of God, but we're the beloved of God. So agape is the word love, but here's the Greek word agapago, which has the root word in agape, but it's a more intense type of love. It's a familiar type of love. It's a love that you have for someone that you know very well. It's like love of a spouse, the love of a mom, the love of family. Is this is the belovedness that God has called us in Christ Jesus. In fact, if you could put it in 2022 language, it would be this. God is madly in love with you. He has set the fullness of his love upon you. The full character, the massive weight of his love is fixed on you. It is set on you. His loving eyes and his loving character are set on you right now. You are his. You are his Beloved, the weight of the character of the love of God is set on you. So that's who we are. We're chosen, we're holy, we're beloved. So now that we know that, who are we to be? How then are we to relate to other people? What type of people should we be? Let's pick it up here again in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, we've already determined this, holy and beloved. Here's what we are to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. A bearing with one another. That's the clothing we're to put around us in the new self. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Look at those seven things. In fact, on the screen, I've underlined them for you so you can see the seven, if you will, pieces of clothing we are to put on, by God's grace, put on. This is how we are to relate to one another. First of all, with compassionate hearts. That word is really weird. It speaks of the stomach or the gut. Um, we use that phrase now. It was like a punch in the gut. In other words, I, I felt it. It's not like someone really like took a fist and punched you in the stomach. You felt something. This is what's happening with compassionate hearts. We feel something within us for other people who are, who are lonely, who are hurting, who are hungry who are lost. It's the same word used of Jesus in Mark chapter six. When Remember, Jesus was trying to get away for a while because he needed a rest. And as he was trying to get away, he looked on the shoreline and there were all these people waiting to see him, to hear from him, to be healed by him, probably to be fed by him. And the Bible says that he had compassion. He felt it in his gut. He ached for those people. In fact, it says in Mark chapter six, he felt compassion on them like a sheep, like they were sheep without a shepherd. It's when you feel something for someone else, 
someone else who's, who's grieving or lonely is an aching for those who live without Jesus. Second word that we are to put on is kindness, which is closely related to a compassionate heart. Kindness is that virtue that your neighbor's good is even more important to you than your own good. A kindness is that, that willingness to, to care for others. It's, it's expressing goodness toward others. The third word we see here we're to put on is, is humility. And this is interesting. There's no word in Greek for humility because the Greeks weren't really chasing after humility. And so anytime the word humility is used in the Bible, it's really more of a, of a word picture. Here, uh, the word means the, the bottom of a structure. And so kind of the base, everything else kind of sits on top of it. So humility here is the opposite of self-seeking. It's putting others first. It's being okay with being last. It is serving others. We're to put that on, Christian. This is the new self. The next word we see there is meekness. Meekness is willing to, to suffer an injury whether than to inflict an injury. It's that mindset for that concept, really, when you think about it, of, of saying, if, if anyone's going to get hurt, let it be me. If anyone's going to suffer, let it be me. If anyone's going to be offended, let, let me be the one who is offended. If someone else is going to be going to lose or be left out, I will be the one who is left out. I will be the one who, who loses. That meekness is a willingness to lift other people up above yourself. And then patience. It's the opposite of resentment. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's the opposite of revenge. It's the opposite of wanting to blow up somebody verbally. It's the opposite of anger. And then we see here these two phrases um, in, in verse 13, bearing with one another. Anytime you see the phrase one another in the New Testament, it is speaking about the church. The, the one anotherness. Uh, there's about 72 one another's in the New Testament of how we are to treat one another, how we are to relate to one another. Here, the one another is to bear with, with one another within the church family, within the Christian community here in Waco. We are to endure difficult people. We are to endure irritating people. We are to, to be quick to, to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We have to be quick to believe the best about one another, quick to support one another. This is what it means to, to bear one another, then that last one another is to forgive one another. If someone has, if you have a complaint against somebody, someone has a complaint against you, there's this mutual forgiveness. It's, it's speaking again of the church here. We forgive one another. We forgive one another with no strings attached. We forgive totally. We forgive completely. And if you wonder what that looks like, Paul gives the answer at the very end of verse 13. How, how much should we be forgiving? How, how do I forgive others? Forgive, verse 13, at the very end, forgive in the same way Christ has forgiven you. I thank God that he has forgiven me completely and fully. I thank God that he has forgiven me with no strings attached. It's an unconditional forgiveness. I stand as a beneficiary today of the quick, total, complete forgiveness of God through Christ Jesus. Brother and sister, so do you. And we're told here, here's the standard. We're to forgive one another in the same way, in the exact same manner that God through Christ Jesus has forgiven us. I mean, just think of all the sins in this room multiplied by all the years of our lives. And that Christ has forgiven all of those. That is the same way in which we are to forgive 
one another. So these are our clothes, brothers and sisters, where we're to put on these seven attributes in verse 12 and verse 13, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And we're okay with being in those countercultural words. By the way, when you look at those seven words, none of them describe our culture today. Humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another. Have you seen Twitter? Bearing with one another? Forgiving one another? These are such countercultural words, and the only way you and I can live in those words and wrap those words around us and live in that new self is, first of all, again, to know who we are. So I've just put little boxes around those three words. Chosen, that's who you are. Holy, that's who you are. Beloved, that's who you are. So we're okay then, Christian, in being forgiving people, humble people, patient people, meet people, because we know who we are. We're chosen. We've been taken out of the mainstream of our culture and set apart, and the massive love and affection of God is set upon us. So we don't come by these words naturally. We come by those seven words supernaturally. So it's important to know identity before you begin to adjust your behavior. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, verse 15. And above all of these, so the the, the put-ons are still happening. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. He's staying with the clothing analogy here. Who knew that Paul was a fashionista and he loved, loved clothing things. Here, here he is just talking more about putting things on. So you have all seven of these things and now comes the belt. Now comes the things that ties all seven of those things together. And what is that belt? The belt is, verse 14, love. Because there's no way you're forgiving people unless you're compelled by the love of God. You're never going to bear with one another unless the love of God supremely controls you. There is zero chance of you being humble and patient and meek unless you're ruled by the love of God. You see, without love, what we have here really is seven legalistic, just moral Attitudes. These seven things could be taught in, in our education system. These seven things could be taught in, 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 the, in the workplace. These seven things could be taught, they probably are, on Sesame Street. Like just kind of be these seven things, but this is nothing really but, but, but legalism and moral attributes unless the spirit of the living God is living inside of you. Because love is one of the fruits of the spirit and it's that life that is yielded to the spirit. It's an overflow of realizing that we're loved or be loved by God, if you will, that we're able to put on these things even though they're unbelievably counter-cultural. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's an interesting word picture here. The the, the peace of Jesus is gonna call all the shots in your life. That the peace of Christ is gonna be the umpire of your life. It's gonna make all the calls for you. So peace has to rule in your heart. Therefore, you're giving peace to others. Both of these words, verse 14, love, verse 15, peace. They both have these horizontal implications here. You see, verse 14, love brings what? Harmony. It brings harmony to the body of Christ. What does 15, the, the word peace bring? It brings a oneness to the body of Christ. And so I know it's been a while since you've taken some notes. You can write this down. Loving, peaceable relationships are the mark of good theology. 
You see, I, I think here in our states, in the states and here maybe even in the south and, and maybe even here at Highland, we have to be careful that we're not just growing in this head knowledge without growing in life change. I mean, you can tell me that you're spiritually mature and you can tell me that, that you are, you, you know scripture, that you're a mature Christian, that you have biblical wisdom and that you're theologically astute. But if you're caustic and I always have a divisive tongue and you're not patient with other people and you're unkind in your words, then I don't believe you are wise, nor mature, nor theologically astute. See, good, good theology isn't just head knowledge it's life change, it's understanding. Here's what theology is. It's understanding and knowing and studying the character and the nature of God. So if you're understanding more and more the nature and character of God, it's not gonna just stay inside of you. Eventually, it will be evidenced by those two words, love and peace toward others on the outside. Then Paul throws in this little beauty into verse 15. Oh yeah, and be thankful. Almost a by the way, and be thankful. Here's what I wrote in my notes to me this week that I'll just pass along to you. Few things will keep love fresh and peace abounding like thankfulness. Amen. Have you noticed in your own life, I have in mine, I can't be sour and thankful at the same time. Have you noticed in your life, I have in mine, I can't be self-centered and thankful at the same time. I can't be arrogant and thankful at the same time. I can't be downcast in my soul and thankful at the same time. And I would submit to you, thankfulness is the almost unseen under, undertone of the book of Colossians. Would you, for just a second, go back with me to, to chapter, chapter one. Let's go back to the very beginning. Colossians chapter one it should just be one page to the left, so it's not that big of a, of a deal to turn back, I hope, one page. Chapter one, verse three. Look how Paul starts this thing. We always... Thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 11 of that same chapter. Chapter 1, verse 11. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Jump down to chapter 2. Look at verse 6 and look at verse 7 with me. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Chapter 2, verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in Thanksgiving. Go back to where we were just then, chapter 3, verse 15. Let me read that to you again. Let the peace of Christ rule, umpire in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Keep reading in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts. Look at verse 17, chapter 3. And whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, to the Father, through him. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. It's the undertone of this entire book that we are to live these lives of, of thankfulness, lives of, of gratitude. And I think I can say this, perhaps you would agree, some of the most winsome Christians I know are Christians who are always giving thanks. Do you know how spiritually attractive that is in Waco? in the middle of the culture in which we now live and have for about the last 29 months or so, to have a life of thanksgiving, a life of gratitude, to thank God for every good and perfect gift that he has given to us. You know how winsome that is in our culture today to be a person of, of gratitude? Few things are more beautiful than a thankful Christian. 
And I would say for evangelism, sharing the gospel, the good news with others, few things draw people in even more than a Christian who has a heart that is constantly thankful. Chapter three, verse 16. I know we've read it already. Let me read it to you again. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There's the church phrase again, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. The first word there, or the first uh, word I want to explain is that word dwell. Let the word of God, the word of Christ dwell in you. That means let it be at home with you. Let God's word find a comfortable place in you. Have you noticed you really can't settle into a hotel? I was in a hotel on Friday night for, for a wedding this weekend. You don't settle into a hotel. Like, like you kind of throw your stuff everywhere and, and, you, and you sit there for a little bit. Like, I'm not gonna sit here in this hotel. You know where I can sit for days? My home. Like I'm settled there. That's the exact word for, for dwell. Let God's word find a comfortable place in your heart. Let God's word dwell there. Let God's word be, be at home there. And the word, the adverb attached to that is richly. Let it dwell in you richly, which is really just the word for abundantly. Don't be cheap with God's word. Don't let it scarcely be studied. Let, let it richly dwell in you. And this is fascinating to me. And I'm almost done. Do you know what happens then when God's word settles in you? Thank you, Josh, I will. You teach and you sing. You're looking at me like I just made that up. It's right here in verse 16. When the word of Christ is in you and your heart becomes a home for the word of God, the two natural rea reactions is to teach. And it also says here to admonish. That means to inform others and, and to warn others within the body. And then to sing. It even tells us to sing three different types of songs. And no one knows what these three different types of songs mean. So I've looked at all the theologians. They all have different answers, which means no one has an answer. We are to sing psalms. We're to sing hymns. We're to sing spiritual songs. We're to have thankfulness in our hearts. But that word thanksgiving right there is the word charis, which is the exact same word for grace. And so we're to sing with grace. We're to sing with graceful thanksgiving. When God's word comes inside of us, we teach others and we sing. So here's my last thing for you today. Singing is an outward expression of God's inward grace. In other words, when, when you sing, you're just taking that grace that God has applied to your heart through Christ Jesus and you're just expressing it to others. And I, again, this makes us so weird in our culture today. I've, I know I've said this a few months ago. Non-Christians think that we're the weirdest people in the world, that we would come and sing songs together. If you grew up in church, you don't think about it. Well, of course I'm singing. I'm coming to church. If you did not grow up in church and you walk into a church service and we're all singing songs, I'll say it. That's weird. When people go, y'all sing songs? Did you practice? No, we just... We just sang. Did you sound good? Well, some people did. Some people not so much, but we all, we just sang together. Why did you sing? Because of grace. Grace teaches our hearts to sing. That applied grace through Christ Jesus on the inside, like it's bubbling up inside of us. It has to be expressed. And so we, we sing. And now who do we sing to? It's very clear here in verse 16. We sing to God. These psalms, these hymns, these spiritual songs, they are sung 
to God. It's a Godward motion. Even this morning, we did this. Pastor Jared does this so very well. This morning, we began by almost singing to one another. I don't know if you caught this or not. We were telling one another, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. We started with that song almost explaining to one another, teaching one another with these psalms, these hymns, these spiritual songs. And then we moved into this brand new song. And the brand new song we sang today had the phrase in it, O rock, O rock of ages, I am standing on your faithfulness. Then we sang a familiar song, that the goodness of God, all my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so so good. Then we sang a song that the Highland Music staff wrote. Uh, Highland Music wrote, nothing is hidden from you. You are making all things new. I'll give you a teaser. We're about to sing a song that has the phrase in it, I will build my life upon your love. These songs that are constructed for us on Sunday mornings are songs that are Godward. We're singing to God. And I'm going to wrap it up here in verse 17. It's almost like verse 17 is if verse 12 through 16 didn't make any sense to you, or you got lost somewhere along the way, Paul just says in verse 17, actually, whatever you do, in word or deed, just do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, Paul is saying here, whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think, just line it up with Jesus. Whatever you do may, may be consistent with the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a playwriter he wrote a play back in 1905. His name was Jerome. I'm not making this up. First name, Jerome. Last name, Jerome. Very creative parents. They just named him what his last name was. His name was Jerome K. Jerome. And, and he wrote a book um, that was called the, uh, the Passing of the Third Floor Back. And it's a story, uh, it's a play about a boarding house in England that was filled with some of the most broken, hurting, lonely, sad people. There was a marriage that was falling apart. There was a family that had no money left, had lost it all. There was a little servant girl that worked for the owner of, of the boarding house and she had nothing, no food, was paid very little. So she was selling herself, selling her virtue. To, to buy trinkets and, and to buy food. It was, a, it was a sad, needy boarding house. Until one day, he's, his name is The Stranger in, in this play, he moves to the third floor back, a brand new tenant. He comes in and he is a man of love, of humility. A man of meekness, a man who helped to bear the needs of those around him. And this little servant girl, the one who had sold her body for trinkets and for food. He would speak to her in such words of kindness and compassion. Reminded her that she was loved. That she was known. And everyone within that, that boarding house, they were drawn to the stranger who just had such kind words to give. One day the stranger had to move out. He was leaving, leaving that third floor back. And on his way out, this little servant girl says to him, please, sir, are you him? Are you Jesus? 
And I would just submit to you today that that should be a question that is asked of many a Christian. A question asked of many a Christian here in Waco. Because who does that new self look like? Who else is humble and compassionate and patient and bears with others and forgive others? Jesus. Are you him? A question that we probably should be asked often. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful today that by your grace, we can put on the new self. For those who are in Christ Jesus today, they can put on the new self. For those who are not in Christ today, they can believe upon Christ today and put on the new self. Compassionate hearts, humility, meekness, patience, kindness. Oh, how our world and our culture and our city long for people who are dressed like that. So God, first of all, remind us who we are in Christ, that you chose us. You brought us as a spiritual orphan into your family. You pulled us out of the culture, the mainstream of the culture, where it was headed. You've set us apart and you have set your affection upon us. Once we know who we are, then we can do what you called us to do. We just want to build our lives upon upon your nature, upon your character, so that as we receive this love as the beloved people of God, it'll be so easy for us to distribute that love to others around us. So God, we sing this song really as a song of commitment, a song of worship to God, a song of commitment to others on who we will be, how we will rightly, biblically relate to others even this week. So we sing with joy and we sing with conviction. In Christ we pray and we can't help but sing.